The 2020 general election is now just days away and more than 64 million Americans have already voted. There's no doubt this election is unlike any other. President Donald Trump, a real estate developer who's had four years in office, is pitching himself for another term as a law and order focused leader who'll put the economy back on track as scores of businesses close and millions remain out of work. Normal life, that's what we want, right? Normal life. We want normal life. We just want normal life. It's happening very quickly. And next year will be the greatest economic year in the history of our country. Former Vice President Joseph Biden says he would be a unifying figure with a plan to steer the country through the chaos of the pandemic with a view for ending the divisions that have fractured the country. I don't look at this in terms of the way he does. Blue states and red states. They're all the United States. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. In this episode, we're hearing from members of our newsroom about what's at stake for the commercial real estate industry and how the businessmen and women are preparing for what lies ahead. We begin our discussion in the nation's capital with our Washington DC reporter, John Bannister. Obviously, John, since 2016, there's been a developer, a real estate guy in the White House, and there's been a number of policies uh, from the Trump administration that has um, the, the real estate industry is really welcomed. Tax bill of 2017 comes to mind. But it's been a big four years and 2020 is a complete world away from uh, 2016. A week out, where would you say real estate is lining up? I would say it's mixed. You know, there are still a lot of real estate executives backing President Trump, uh, you know, big name CEOs who, who have uh, donated millions of dollars to him. But Joe Biden has actually gained more donations from the real estate industry at large. And, uh, you know, I've heard from some real estate executives who feel more comfortable with the Joe Biden presidency. Uh, which seems to be the, the way the polls are looking right now. Obviously, there, there could be an upset, but, but these executives have to prepare for, for likely outcomes, and they're, they're starting to sort of warm up to that. And there are various reasons why, why they support each of them. You did a story a little while ago looking at that kind of switch, that sense that people are warming up to Biden. What have they had to get warmer on? Yeah, I mean, a big part of it is, is economic policy and and the tax increase proposal. So the reason that they support Trump so much and, and that people have praised his, his policies have been the, the tax law that you mentioned. And uh, Joe Biden has proposed, you know, reversing those tax cuts, um, increasing the corporate tax rate. And they see this as a, a difficult time for that because obviously they always oppose tax increases uh, on their business. But right now they're facing revenue losses uh, from the coronavirus. Some people have said that you have to look at, at where things look like they're heading. You know, it looks like Biden is, is in the lead. So people don't want to be caught on the wrong side of things if Biden wins. So some people have supported him from a pragmatic sense of, you know, we want to be able to influence the administration. Others, you know, see Biden as uh more stable or more, um, you know, more of a, a centrist, you know, he picked Kamala Harris as his running mate, which I think further solidified the sense from some executives that he's a centrist Democrat. He, you know, he, he didn't pick Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, but, but yeah, I mean, there, there's still, uh, 
many reasons why some support President Trump. What are the specifics of um, Biden's tax policies or Biden's tax plans that kind of have the real estate industry's ears pricked up? So the headline one is the corporate tax rate. Biden has proposed increasing that from 21% to 28%, which, like I mentioned, would take a further hit to their their bottom lines right now uh, that, that are challenged by the pandemic. He's also proposed a 15% minimum tax rate, which is aimed at large companies that use tax breaks as a way to, to reduce their overall bill. You know, below that level, this would kind of set a floor on what they would pay from a corporate tax rate perspective. He's also proposed eliminating the 1031 exchange program. Uh, this is a, you know, a favorite among real estate investors. It allows them to defer taxes on real estate sales, uh, you know, when they flip the proceeds of that sale into another real estate asset. There's a couple other things. He's, he's proposed increasing the tax rate for carried interests and increasing the capital gains taxes for inherited real estate. So those are all various proposals that he's made. Now, it's important to note that he would likely need the Democrats to win the Senate in order to enact these types of policies. The president can't make sweeping economic reforms on his own. The Democrats have control of the House uh, and are expected to, to keep that, but the Senate is, is looking like a close race. So it'll be, you know, real estate executives are, are watching the Senate just as much as they're watching the presidential race to figure out which way things are going. So the real estate industry players who have publicly stated or, or publicly kind of discussed with you their support of either Biden or Trump, those who are supporting Biden, what are their, what's the hope for his presidency? A big one is that he'll do a better job of addressing the coronavirus pandemic. You know, they've seen the Trump administration handling this crisis over the last several months, and there's been resurgences of cases, and places have had to shut back down after reopening. And, you know, they think Biden would take it more seriously as a health crisis, take greater steps in terms of mask wearing and testing and really try to, to control the spread of the virus, which they should see as necessary to reopen the economy and get things back to normal with their real estate developments and everything else. They also think uh, a Biden administration could be more generous with their stimulus spending. You know, the the it's been several months since a stimulus bill was passed or, or a relief bill for the pandemic. If Biden wins, they see it as, as more likely that there's a, a larger number on that potential stimulus bill. Now it's still in flux right now and anything could happen with that. There's also the prospect of a major infrastructure bill. This is something that the Trump administration has talked about since he was elected, but ha hasn't pushed forward. It's also something the Democrats would need to win the Senate for if Mitch McConnell has been hesitant about major in infrastructure spending. But if they push forward a trillion dollar infrastructure package, that, that could certainly benefit the real estate industry. You know, there's there's various other reasons. Uh, one of them I've talked to, uh, 
you know, black real estate professionals who, who think that Joe Biden would do a better job on, on the issue of race and not inflaming tensions. There's also one point on taxes that favors Biden. The, uh, the state and local tax, uh, you know, the SALT taxes, something that actually increased under Trump's plan, uh, under Trump's, you know, tax bill, uh, which, you know, uh, you know, those taxes increase for people in, you know, blue states, large cities like New York and San Francisco. Uh, and this has, you know, sort of exacerbated people leaving those cities. So, you know, Biden could potentially reverse that, make make it a little more attractive to live in those big cities. It's interesting because there are some people who've really declared their hand, as you say, these these pragmatists who who are saying this is what the polls are preparing us for. We need to prepare for a, a greater likelihood uh, we're, we're getting behind Biden. But on the other hand, like industry groups, for example, the National Multifamily Housing Council are really hedging their bets with the election. What have you seen in terms of donations and support? Yeah, those industry associations like NMHC and National Apartment Association, Mortgage Bankers Association, they tend to stay 50-50 in their donations. They support both sides and they don't publicly endorse a candidate because they want to be able to work with either administration. So they they don't want, you know, to, to be seen as unfriendly if, if, if their preferred candidate loses. So, you know, they, they are political and they do advocate on issues that are important to them and they, they they contribute to candidates but they don't come out and endorse candidates like some companies or, or individuals might you touched on it in terms of the of biden's tax proposals that he would really need to well the democrats rather would really need to have hold of the senate just speaking more generally i mean when we talk about the president and the makeup of Congress, what are you hearing from sources? Is there a view about how this might fall either way? Is there a preference at all? Yeah, I've heard a sentiment among real estate executives that an ideal outcome would be a Biden presidency with a Republican Senate, you know, which is kind of counterintuitive. People who are involved in politics, you know, would want a single party that that they support to, to take control. But People who see Biden as a more stabilizing force in, in the White House, uh, you know, might want him, but they don't necessarily want him to have the power to enact major legislative changes. So they uh, would support, you know, a, a Republican Senate that could, um, you know, sort of balance that out and not um, it, it wouldn't really lead to any sweeping economic policy changes, uh, you know, we would largely see the status quo on, on things like taxes. Uh, so that's uh, something I've, I've heard it, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of real estate people that, that, that would want the Democrats to take control of the Senate or, or you know, would want uh, Trump to, to win the White House. But that's just that's just one, you know, possibility that, that I think is, is appealing to, to a lot of people. It's a bit counterintuitive, isn't it, to imagine this kind of stalemate, four years of kind of tense, constant things being held up, though? Yeah, I mean, 
they would prefer to see the status quo in terms of tax policy than see major changes. So while, you know, political groups that have agendas and want to see things passed would like to have, uh, you know, a White House and a Congress of the same party to, to pass new things. If, you, if you're fine with where things are right now, you're fine with where the tax rate is and where regulations or economic policies are, um, you, you may be okay with, with more stalemate. Um, obviously, you'd like to see some more certainty around things like the budget and, you, you know, you don't want more government shutdowns that, that have happened over the last few years, but business executives tend to, you know, they, they don't want major sweeping, you know, changes to the left on, on tax policy. So they, they would be fine with, with the Republicans holding on to the, the Senate. Let's focus on fundraising for a minute. Obviously, as we've discussed, there are a lot of people that are warming up to Biden. Uh, but the industry certainly hasn't turned their back on Trump. Uh, and there are still, as you say, it's mixed. There are still people who support him as a president. There are people who still want him to be reelected. Uh, talk me through who's donating to the president. Yeah, he's got some big names behind him. Uh, you know, the CEO of Blackstone, Stephen Schwartzman, uh, Vornado, Stephen Roth, um, Colony Capital's Tom Barrick, um, some other executives. I, I spoke with uh, Joel Marcus, at uh, the, the chairman of Alexandria Real Estate Equities, a big life sciences REIT. Um, the CEO of Greystone has... Uh, contributed to Trump, uh, John Katsimatidis, uh, New York real estate executive. Uh, so he has a lot of, uh, a lot of big names backing him. Now the, the data shows that overall Biden ha does have a, an edge in terms of overall real estate contributions. This website, uh, the, the center for responsive politics, they track campaign spending from uh, you know, campaign donations from certain industries. And they found that as of last week, Joe Biden has $22 million from the real estate industry, while Donald Trump has $18.5 million. Um, and that, you know, includes individuals who work for these real estate companies. Uh, and, you know, not, not necessarily all executives or, or corporate level donations. Um, but yeah, there, there are certainly people backing Trump, there are people backing Biden, um, and uh, they're all waiting to see how it shakes out. Those who were supporting Trump, what do they want from him? What are they hoping he'll do with the second term? They want to see him, uh, you know, continue to cut regulations, you know, some of the, uh, the, the things that they saw as cumbersome and, and standing in the way of, of business you know he's he's made an effort to to cut those and they they want to see him keep his tax cuts in place you know they're afraid of, of joe biden reversing those um they would like to see him pass uh an infrastructure bill which i, I mentioned before that trump has talked about many in the real estate industry especially you know construction side of the industry would love to see a big infrastructure bill um which you know, would, would pump billions of dollars into that and create new projects and, uh, you know, new jobs in that area. You know, they'd obviously like to see him continue to reopen the economy and help 
move the country out of this pandemic and uh, address, you know, the health crisis. And the ones I talked to, though, didn't see that as, you know, necessarily the, the top issue, whereas the Biden supporters I talked to were more more focused on the coronavirus. You know, it was sort of a you know, like a secondary issue for, for some some of the Trump supporters I talked to uh, that they, they were more focused on tax policy, economic policy. John Bannister, BizNow's Washington, D.C. reporter. There are millions of Americans who have lost their jobs. They can't pay the rent. Their kids need the food. That's right, and that's what we're trying to get done. $1.8 trillion, and the president just tweeted, stimulus, go big or go home. He wants even more right right now. So why not not work on a deal with him and don't let the perfect, as they say here in Washington, be the enemy of the good? Well, I will not let the wrong be the enemy of the right. What's wrong with $1.8 trillion? That's Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi speaking there with Wolf Blitzer on CNN a few weeks ago about the talks between Democrats and Republicans over a fresh round of stimulus funding that has simply dragged on. On Monday, the sides failed to reach a deal and now both the Senate and the House are on recess until after the election and hopes for an agreement anytime soon are basically dead. BizNow's managing editor, Katie Dixon, who's based in Houston, says the commercial real estate industry has been watching the discussions closely, particularly as it relates to businesses being able to access cash, the fate of the eviction moratoriums, and the need for renters' assistance. Stimulus talks kind of began for round two in May. That's when the House passed its first HEROES Act. That was a $3 trillion bill. It was a little more kind of ceremonial than anything. No one really expected it to go any further, and sure enough, it didn't. True negotiations have begun, began in about July, and so since then, it's just been back and forth and back and forth. October, things really heat up, and that's when it's just been like every day, every week, something different has happened. There's all these new proposals flying. We saw Donald Trump come in with the shutting down negotiations, bringing them back, saying he wanted larger than the House is asking for, saying it needed to be lower. And it's, it's just been very dramatic and very confusing since the beginning of October. But as of Monday night, it seems like officially there will be no deal until after the election. The White House last official proposal was $1.8 trillion. There's been some reporting that that has edged up higher and that there seems to be kind of informal chatter, chatter that they'll end up around $2 trillion. What is in there is, is very fuzzy at this point. So details are fuzzy, as you say, exactly what's in, these, in this bill or what's in these proposals. What is commercial real estate waiting on? So the most obvious thing is the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, on both sides of the coin. I mean, there are small real estate specific businesses that got money through that and would get money going forward. Uh, But also obviously that helps a lot of tenants. It's been more geared towards small businesses. So a lot of retailers got Paycheck Protection Program money. There's a lot of money left in the Paycheck Protection Program. We can get more into that later. But the House had proposed adding an additional $30 billion in funding there And whatever that number ends up being, it does seem like the House, the Senate, and the White House all agree that should be extended and continued. The other thing I've been seeing is the Main Street Lending Program, which has not been used very much. There's a lot of money left in it from from the CARES Act, but that was designed for larger companies. You can get that money if you're up to 15,000 employees. Very few people have, very few companies have been able to get money that way. 
but I have seen some some chatter in the industry about about that program that if restrictions were eased that if things got a little more smoothed out and how you can get that money and who can get that money that that would help um, the hotel industry in particular seems to be focusing very very hard on this Main Street lending program and again it's not necessarily that they need more money in a second stimulus package they just need to find a way to get access to what was already approved under the CARES Act um, so that's what the hotel industry seems to be looking for. The retail industry uh, seems to be more focused on the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, I think one of the things people are hoping for is that you can get a second round, that you know if you got approved under the first round of PPP money that you can get more. Um, I think that that is something that, that is gonna be possible, but not necessarily agreed on um, in the second round in whatever gets passed, the HEROES Act or whatever it may be. Uh, and then for the multifamily industry, they're obviously looking pretty heavily at individual stimulus money because that's what their renters would have access to. Unemployment benefits, uh, the additional money for unemployed people would very much help multifamily. And then they are looking at the, at the eviction moratoriums because there'd be some significance there. So I didn't realize that there's still money available. I didn't realize. I thought that it, it, the industry had kind of exhausted all its options. Yeah, there is a surprising amount of money left. So there's $130 billion left in the CARES Act. And there is, of the $600 billion that was proposed in the Main Street Lending Program, that was approved in the Main Street Lending Program, the most recent number I saw was that only $3 billion of it was allocated as of about two weeks ago. Uh, I know the Main Street Lending Program did have billions of dollars that are set aside um, for basically delinquencies and non-payment of loans. I think it was $75 billion of that $600 billion is supposed to be earmarked for people that can't repay. But still, I mean, that's $500 billion plus that's just been sitting there. Um, there's just been a lot of complaints, as I said, specifically from the hotel industry for, for our world, saying that it's just applications aren't getting approved. It's very fuzzy about how you get this money. Um, the Some of the biggest hotel developers and owners reached out to Trump earlier this month in a direct letter from multiple Hilton Marriott, et cetera, saying, please smooth this out, find a way for us to get access to this money. The PPP money has been a little fuzzier. Um, some of the issues came from the slowness for forgiveness. Um, there were a lot of people that were kind of earlier this fall, late summer returning funds because they were worried it was not going to be forgiven and turned into a grant. There are all sorts of restrictions, mostly in how you spend that money about if it gets forgiven. Um, there was also some pressure that led to some people returning money. Uh, there were, again, back to hotels, some hotel developers had gotten money and then there was huge blowback saying it wasn't intended for them. It's supposed to be for a small mom and pop company, not a huge hotel conglomerate. Uh, so there was a lot there. So I guess between those two programs, there's, you know, almost $750 billion that is untouched still to be used. Um, and that's something they're considering definitely in going forward. There were some proposals earlier this month about reallocating that $130 billion in unspent PPP money uh, that came mostly from the Senate Republicans, but that got very much shut down. I think the Fed was also looking at that, but um, there was blowback that that was illegal, that you can't just reallocate. It would have to be approved by Congress, which just gets you back to that exact same argument of they can't agree. So very complicated. It sounds like a lot of money held up in red tape, like money just sitting there 
which I yeah. guess is very, very frustrating for a lot of people who, who want to try and access that money. Apart from the hotel industry, have we heard much from other commercial real estate players as these kind of drawn out negotiations have continued about what they want and what they want the government to do? Yeah, I mean, one of the most significant would be from the multifamily industry. Um, they've been talking a lot about the eviction moratoriums, but the probably most common thread is that, I mean, there are plenty of people that are pushing back against eviction moratoriums, but pretty much everyone on all sides of this equation are saying, we need support. Um, the National Housing Conference CEO, David Dworkin, had said he estimates it could take up to $35 billion to cover the past due rent. So they're asking for that money. Um, the House proposal had included some um, just shy of $60 billion that would go toward rent relief and other housing support. Uh, there's no word, like the White House kind of hasn't said either way on if they support that or don't. That number could pass as is, or there could be nothing, or it could be a lower amount. Uh, I think even that shrunken down, when they'd originally proposed it, it was $100 billion. Uh, but then in that Heroes 2.0, that $1.8 trillion proposal, that uh, had $59.1 billion set aside specifically for rent relief and housing services. Um, and that would definitely fit in with what most multifamily lobbying groups and support groups are asking for. Um, they're basically saying everyone needs money. Like, please give money to our renters. Like, we don't want to be, a lot of landlords do seem to be offering forbearance and letting people have not necessarily free rent. I mean, we've heard some instances of just forgiving rent. We've heard more of rent deferral um, or rent reduction, pay some of it. Um, so they're saying, please give our tenants money so they can do that. Please also give the landlords money so that we can, we have the wiggle room. Like we can't just go without any pay. Um, and in that case, there just seems to be a lot less worry about the moratorium if there's all this underpinning. Yeah, there seems to be, I guess, frightened is the word. There was some extraordinary figure, I think you just referenced, about the level of ballooning rent debt that moratoriums are creating. Yeah, I mean, one stat that we have seen is uh, an estimated $34 billion in rent debt. Even if we reach the magical point that everything gets better, uh, that money is still going to be owed. You know, like we said earlier, this is not rent forgiveness. And even the CDC's moratorium is not saying you have to forgive rent. They're saying you just can't kick someone out for not paying it, but you can still make them pay it later. You can still charge them fees. And um, when we talked to some experts earlier this month, they were saying that money, when you owe back rent, that almost never gets forgiven, almost never gets set up in a payment plan. Like if I am struggling to pay my credit card bill, I may be able to call them and say, let's work with me, cut it down, and let me do a payment plan. That seems to almost never happen in multifamily. And it is very, very difficult to get further housing if you still owe this. If I'm going to rent an apartment and they call my past landlord and they say we had to evict them for non-payment, they still owe me $10,000, no one's going to give me that apartment. And of course, this is a completely new situation. Maybe landlords will act in a completely different way from the past, but it seems unlikely. And certainly there's a lot of fear in the market that, that will happen. That you'll have all these people that now are employed but have this burden of possibly 10,000, tens of thousands of dollars from not being able to pay rent for a year that's just lingering and is building up interest and fees. And what most of the experts we talked to, and especially the tenant advocates were saying, you're gonna have to pay that first. Like if you can't get housing until you've paid this off, you're gonna pay that off first. 
So that means no one's spending money on travel, no one's spending money on retail. Like that just trickles down and down and down. Um, the other thing we found, there have been some great surveys and reports done by multiple organizations about kind of what's behind the numbers. So NMHC has been reporting that um, rent payments are actually pretty good. They're pretty similar to last year, but they and lots of other groups are saying that's not the full story. What you're not seeing is savings being completely depleted, credit cards being completely spent up, um, people asking their friends to help them pay rent. So it's like they're making it happen, but they're doing a lot of, of sacrificing to get there and that that's going to have repercussions after this. It makes things look better now, but six months from now, everyone's in a rough spot. They have no money saved. Their credit card just meant they can't spend anything. So that'll hurt the economy in all sorts of facets of commercial real estate when this crisis is over and when the stimulus goes away and the moratoriums are lifted, et cetera. Has there been any indication from either the Trump camp or the Biden camp as to how they would approach this? Has anyone come out and said, we're going to extend moratoriums or we're going to create a, a funding package to help people pay their rent? Do we know anything from either side about what might happen or how they might deal with this? Not much. So obviously we saw that that House proposal in the HEROES Act. But again, we don't know, is that still in place? Who knows what that actually looks like when and if something gets passed. Um, moratoriums have not been really part of the discussion. So the CDC's ban will lift on January 1st. And at that point, it's gone. There are some local moratoriums in place and municipalities and states can still do what they've been doing. But right now, there's just no way of knowing what a moratorium may look like there. The CARES Act had come forward with some eviction moratoriums. And so it's totally possible that HEROES Act or whatever gets passed may as well. Like, and we just, we may be blindsided with it. Like we were completely blindsided by the CDC's moratorium. No one really knew it was coming until suddenly it was here. And there were a lot of questions, a lot of confusion about what that moratorium looked like and still does. And I think it's worth noting that people still don't really understand what that CDC eviction moratorium means. Um, there is some complication about, does it mean you can't begin eviction proceedings? Or does it mean you just can't actually kick someone out? So I could go through the whole legal proceeding and say on January 1st, you're out. The other thing that's very notable is that it's not automatic. There are criteria you have to meet to be protected by the eviction moratorium from the CDC. Um, and one of them is that you have to prove that you have been negatively impacted by the pandemic. So, and you have to prove that you would be homeless or in an unhealthy situation if you were evicted. So I could be evicted, but if I can't point to, oh, my husband lost a job, oh, I've taken a pay cut, I'm not protected. I have to do that. And I have to actively get that paperwork together, present it to a judge. So we talked to some people, I believe it was last month, who were saying that, there's even some judges who are saying, I don't know whether I, is it my responsibility to make sure that these things were happened? If an eviction proceeding is brought to me, do I need to say, hey, does the CDC moratorium apply to you? And different judges were acting differently on that. Some were actively saying, asking that. And others were saying, that's not really, really my job. If someone comes to me with this paperwork, I can decide. But if not, then I can't. So I think when the, the CDC moratorium came out, it seemed like a full stop, and it, it is not. Evictions are proceeding absolutely right now. It's just an extraordinary level of um, uncertainty and an extraordinary level of confusion. In that vein, what if Biden does win on November 3 and we're in a position of a lame duck Congress? I mean, is that going to complicate things further? 
So it seems like really regardless of who wins, there's still big question marks. So there have been a lot of accusations on both sides that no one really wanted to give a deal before the election. No one wanted to give a, a win to the other party. So one theory goes if Trump wins, they'll get a deal signed. There's no longer those games and that politicking. You know, they're really close to a deal already. Pelosi came out Monday night and said, um, you know, I think that if we can agree to a deal, whoever is named president will will sign it. Um, but then she also said that if not, we'll be ready for January. And that kind of goes into that that indication of if Biden wins, there are a lot of fears that will be in that lame duck Congress where no one will want to do anything. Like there's no real political benefit to it. Um, predictions are that if Biden wins, and more importantly, if the Senate flips to be controlled by the Democrats, that yes, maybe we get a stimulus and maybe it's a huge one. Like maybe we no longer have the Republicans saying, let's not take on all this you know, national debt, let's bring this down. Um, maybe the Democrats would all band together and, and sign some gigantic package, but that wouldn't happen until after the inauguration. So we'd be looking at late January. Pelosi, Mnuchin, the White House all seem to be saying maybe something gets through earlier than that. But then pretty much everyone outside of those three says, eh, I really doubt it. There were lots of quotes that came out after uh, recess began saying we're pretty much waiting till January. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's whether House, whether the Senate flips to Democrats is perhaps more important than who wins the presidency. Um, but there's still just no way of knowing. There's no obvious, great, the election happened now, X. There's also the consideration of what if we don't know the result of the election on November 3? Right. I mean, is that another spanner in the works? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, the real estate industry always is nervous about uncertainty. And there's always chatter in an election year about people not wanting to make decisions until they know things. And this year has just amplified that so many 40-fold or something. Um, and I think that goes through everything will uncertainty will affect everything from stimulus to making business decisions otherwise like I, I think if we are all waiting for days or weeks to know who our president is yeah probably nothing else is going to move forward because there's so many things even beyond stimulus that will be decided by whether the senate flips and whether um whether our president changes um and i think even after we know there's still going to be some uncertainty about what do they do now like just because Trump wins the presidency again or Biden wins, we don't actually know how either of them will react and what kind of support they can get. And yeah, I think we're in for a couple weeks at least of just just drastic uncertainty. That's Katie Dixon, BizNow's managing editor, speaking there from Houston. Another major issue for real estate has been the fate of the Opportunity Zone program, which was introduced as part of Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017 and allows investors to defer paying taxes on capital gains if they invest them in underserved communities through a dedicated fund. It was considered a boon for real estate, but the program has drawn significant criticism from people who consider it a tax dodge. I asked our West Coast editor, Riley Gutierrez-McDermott, about how the conversation over the program has shifted throughout the campaign. I think the program in general started out as a bipartisan effort, and it was championed on both sides of the aisle as both a tax break for business that could buoy uh, a sector that was hit really hard in the Great Recession, and uh, a social mobility tool for particularly urban neighborhoods that haven't really traditionally seen a lot of investment, and this would be kind of the sweetener 
to get large investors to come and look at these traditionally disenfranchised neighborhoods. Um, obviously, everything is very fraught in this mm -hmm. uh, election, and, and we've certainly seen that when it's come to talking about opportunity zones and what their future might be. Uh, I think with, with such a polarized electorate, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny, and there has been a lot of scrutiny on anything that the Democrats are doing that's considered uh, pro-big business, particularly corporate welfare, which is certainly something that's been applicable in the Opportunity Zone program, because even if you're the biggest CRE corporation in the world, you're still going to get some kind of tax break uh, by participating in that program. Uh, another issue has been that the program itself is largely mm -hmm. opaque. There aren't really particularly reporting requirements. What there are is not available to the public in large part. People aren't able to see who put money in where or how that decision-making was was uh, arrived at. And and more importantly, there just hasn't been a ton of local insight to how these how these zones are, are crafted, who decides what's going to get which money. And, and then, of course, we've had a lot of high-profile examples of areas that wound up not really being distressed at all, like parts of Palm Beach and the city of Napa. Those have drawn a lot of criticism. And I think you've just seen that intensify during the election process as both both candidates have staked out their political uh, positions on it. Do we know much about what the zones are actually achieving or have actually achieved since their inception? Well, it's largely anecdotal. There's not a lot of central federal information that is available to the public and therefore for the press. There have been some news organizations that have operated on Freedom of Information Acts to access some of that information. Uh, it's largely been through the other side, however, uh, looking at tax records and financial earning statements from public companies uh, or, or trying the best they can to get some kind of hard numbers on what kind of money is being put into where and whether or not it's really been spent. What we typically see is an investor becomes interested in an opportunity zone. They announce a certain amount of money will go in there. They probably have partnered with some community organization, certainly with the city and the state. And then really it's, it's, it's up to them to execute that plan. Uh, many, many places have seen their projects on hold uh, because of the rece recession. There's just not a ton of liquidity. And then there are other places that are very distressed that have seen virtually no interest. Certainly this makes sense if you are in the position of having an opportunity zone in an already up-and-coming neighborhood, right? Something that's either rapidly gentrifying or something that has a, a name brand recognition like Napa. You're going to see a lot more traction for things there because people are going to invest there anyway, right, is the thinking. And, and if they do it through the Opportunity Zone program, not only are they getting on the train at the right time, but they're also probably going to be getting a tax break at some point. There are lawmakers that are trying to make changes to the program, and it isn't just Democrats and it isn't just Republicans, it's on both sides of the aisle. What do we know about that? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, those efforts have largely stalled as we wait for the outcome of the elections as we as we move forward we don't know which party is going to be in control um, of congress and the senate and as a result of that they can't really push through much legislation they're kind of at a, a zero-sum game to to a large extent right now but there have been 
multiple Democrats and, and even the Republican who drafted the original legislation who have said that the, the way the program is being used now is not uh, how it was intended to be used when it was originally drafted. And, and the largest part of that is that there's, there is a lot of opaqueness around who was involved and for how long, but there's also been very little evidence that this provides upward mobility at all. Uh, or that it's necessarily focused on neighborhoods that could could benefit from this kind of investment. And one of the key issues has been the census figures that they use to determine what is a distressed area. There's been a lot of criticism about whether that was a valid data set, whether it was um, the most recent numbers that they should have used. And more importantly, there just there just hasn't been a lot of clarity on how this tool could help enfranchise people, not necessarily uh, just spark more gentrification. Um, so on both sides, Democrats have been gunning for it because it is another largely uh, GOP corporate welfare type bill that provides tax gains to all kinds of corporations that maybe don't necessarily need them. Uh, and then on the Democratic side, it's, it's much more of a populist issue, I think, which is that when you have a lack of clarity about who's involved in a development process, it's very difficult to know um, whether they're going to be building something that's for the benefit of the community. And there is a push from some people to abolish it entirely. Some people think it should get it should be completely removed. Yeah, and I think that will largely depend on the outcome of the election. Uh, if you have a conservative administration, they will likely continue this. This has been uh, a lucrative thing for many businesses who have gotten involved, and it and it looks good on on uh, you know different fronts, right? I mean, it's supposed to champion diversity and it's supposed to champion uh, urban neighborhoods that have already existed and would need a little bit of a lift. So they would likely continue it. But I think that no matter who's in charge, there will be an uptick in reporting regulations and there will need to be some more clarity that's provided so that not just the public can know how this money is being spent and, and what the, the actual statistics show in terms of how effective it is, but so that members of Congress can know what's supposed to happen with this legislation moving forward and how to improve it or or maybe possibly uh, get rid of it. On the Democratic side, it would be very surprising, I think, if this program existed in the current form that it's in. They might keep the urban investment element uh, and change who can be involved, maybe even change the capital gains uh, loophole that's so so lucrative for so many people. What's the party line from Camp Biden about what they think about the program going forward? Have they kind of released details as to what they want to see or what they would do were they to be voted in? Yeah, that's an interesting point. They've been largely silent on this specific issue, but they have been certainly positive uh, in the direction of helping small businesses. Really, the, the tenor of this whole conversation changed when the pandemic hit because local governments have just been punched in the face by the the lack of, of tax revenue and the fallout in their budgets and so this is a this is a program that could potentially help some of those areas and I think that they've they've referred to that in in vague terms as something that they support uh, I don't think really either side has been particularly aggressive in saying that this is their program and they take ownership of it it's been so fraught really back and forth between whether or not it's just a tax break um, and also whether or not it provides any actual good. So, so you know, Trump, when you listen to the Trump administration talk about it, uh, Secretary Ben 
uh, HUD Secretary Ben Carson has been very positive about this, particularly in how it could affect um, public housing and the different sorts of programs that states and cities have in place for distressed uh, residents. But there hasn't really been a lot of talk about how this could look in one year, three years, or, or down the line. It, it's certainly one of those programs that would be on the chopping block, I think, uh, for both parties should they need to, to trim budgets. But in terms of direct party lines, there hasn't been anything very super specific about the Opportunity Zone program, largely because there's just not a lot known about it. But safe to say there's going to be changes, there's going to be scrutiny. Yeah, I think that this this year, um, 2019 and 2020 were hallmarks for this program in the sense that uh, as they became more popular and as development kind of gained traction, more and more communities were frustrated with the process and, and certainly raised those considerations. It's also been really hard, even for financial analysts, to get uh, a handle on how these programs work, uh, where the money's being spent, where it goes, uh, and whether or not it really provides benefits. So some some of these stories are largely anecdotal, right? I mean, you have communities that have seen a lot of benefit from it, and, and they, they like it a lot. Some places like Watts and Southern California and Los Angeles have seen renewed interest in places that haven't had investment probably since the 50s or 60s. And so in that scenario, that's been a positive thing. Uh, in other places, there are, are certainly a lot of pushback about, you know, yacht marinas getting funded through the Opportunity Zone program, and, and that that's going to have increased scrutiny, I think, going forward. But but either way, whoever wins this election, the program will change. Yeah, I've got to say, like the word Napa, I can't see that playing. But to me, that says Napa Valley, and that does not <laughs> can't see that yeah. playing with the public. And it's it's interesting that you say that because. You know, this is our, I'm the West Coast editor, and, and so this is our regular beat. We cover this a lot. And it was a surprise to all of us that Napa was designated in, in even a small part uh, as an opportunity zone, particularly the city of Napa, which is right in the, the heart of wine country. And while it has gone through some earthquakes um, and wildfires and all the various other vagaries of being part of California, uh, it hasn't ever, I think, sprung to anybody's mind as a distressed uh, economic pact that has that has somehow uh, been been designated and marked by the governor's office as uh, needing improvement and investment uh, in very particular tracks and parcels of of Napa, the city of Napa. Um, now, this is a perfect example of the pushback that opportunity zones typically get, which is on one side you have local businesses and uh, city government officials who say, you know, we have little pockets that haven't been as invested as we would like, and we'd like to see development. Uh, and on the other hand, you have people saying, you know, California has some of the lowest poverty rates of anywhere in the United States. Uh, why aren't we focusing on those communities, right? Uh, and that's typically the mm -hmm. conversation and how it happens. It's also, I think, fascinating to look at how these decisions are made at state and legislative levels, and then how the community themselves greet those decisions and whether or not they feel like there's a stake involved. Uh, Napa itself, the tracks that they had designated had already had some development to a certain extent, um, including some luxury shops. I mean, they have, they have tracks that have Lululemon stores and things like that that were already there. And so really the argument becomes by community proponents, is this something that we're looping in only to provide capital tax 
uh, breaks, or is this something that the community really needs? Does it really lift some some neighborhoods out of poverty? That conversation has to be had by legislators and uh, the individual developers themselves. But again, it's unless you go and report these things on the ground, it's very hard to get hard numbers about whether or not what they're doing has been successful. On the matter of sustainability, obviously a really big thing for real estate, climate change, a huge issue for the nation, for the world generally, over where you are, you've been dealing with really damaging, destructive wildfires. Biden has released a sustainability plan. How's the industry reaction to it been? Well, I, th I think it's been typical for what you would expect from commercial real estate, which is, you know, regulations themselves are, are very much a taboo subject. And not not typically greeted with enthusiasm by this by this sector. Uh, mm. I think that's certainly been the case when it's been a conversation about sustainability. Biden's plan, mm. Mm. the way it exists now, and of course anything is is game to change after the actual election. But this his plan would be a two trillion dollar variety hodgepodge of different sustainable efforts to change building codes, to change uh, what it takes to make a building a, a, a green building what it takes to conserve energy. And with that, of course, with those new regulations would come all kinds of things. Some of them, which are considered good things like jobs for the people who would be renovating these buildings. Some of them considered, you know, bad things by the business community, which would be higher costs and, and what it means to meet all these regulations and to make all these, these different buildings sustainable. There's a lot of commercial real estate in the United States, certainly more per capita uh, than most places in the world. So what it looks like to renovate every single building into a sustainability uh, plan is, is complicated. What concrete uh, elements of it are developers and landlords looking at? Well, I mean, it's tricky because they haven't necessarily released, you know, a long laundry list of this is how things would change by size and this is how these, these sorts of things would, would look and how much they would cost. But, but largely speaking, it would mean retrofitting 4 million buildings all across the United States, um, and then you would see all kinds of different things that would be looped into his infrastructure plan, including different regional and national railroad and transit systems. Uh, and then how you build a, a building so that it meets specific standards for mm -hmm. carbon emissions. That's a big one. Um, we certainly saw during mm -hmm. the pandemic in the Bay Area and, and across the country, but particularly in, in places with a lot of traffic, that when people weren't driving, carbon emissions fell uh, substantially. Biden's plan would be looking for a way to kind of cap the carbon emissions that you that you see uh, in cities. Buildings themselves account for around 50 to 75 percent of carbon emissions in the average city, and they would be looking at ways that you could change the built environment that could possibly ca possibly cap some of those things. Um, you know, he also has a, a tangential plan that would be $46 billion to modernize schools and early learning facilities. Uh, that also would be part of the infrastructure plan. And all of these things would be would be tweaked um, as part of the commercial building push. There's also the, the relatively unpopular stance from, uh, you know, a politician who's from Delaware uh, that would be raising corporate income tax from 21% to 28%. Uh, and possibly even eliminate the 1031 exchange program, all of which are touchstones for, for commercial real estate uh, moving forward. The attack that I've heard from Trump, I think, in multiple occasions is, is that the Democrats want to build buildings with tiny little windows. Is, is he talking specifically about the retrofitting? Is that where that fits in? 
You know, I, who, who really knows where he gets his information, honestly? Uh, I, I think that he's uniquely positioned as an American president who has a background in commercial real estate to perhaps find regulations to be onerous and, and expensive. There hasn't, as far as I know, been any very specific plan that has already, you know, measured out. Here's how big your windows will have to be. Here's how, how big your your floor will have to, how high your floor will have to be here, your solar panels you have to use. But certainly that would be the kind of direction that you would see sustainability efforts handing to. Now, all of this may be largely moot because the pandemic has cut down so much on people occupying businesses uh, and occupying offices, and even in people who are interested in office space, because why would you pay, I don't know, a couple grand couple hundred grand a year to maintain a prime office space if people are all working from home, right? And you can save that cost because of remote work. So how this model looks going forward may be completely different than what Joe Biden and uh, and, and Donald Trump were thinking about when they uh, put together lists of, of how to make buildings more sustainable. Has Trump walked through any sort of plan about how buildings would have to be built or some sort of plan about sustainability and and how commercial real estate would would fit into that yeah that's a great uh example the trump administration has largely been focused on limiting regulation and rolling back things that they've seen as as burdensome for for larger uh, larger corporate interests the problem with that is that we certainly are undergoing some extreme weather uh, issues, and so any infrastructure plan that comes from either administration needs to include uh, ways to make buildings uh, more resilient, whether it's for wildfires or hurricanes or uh, anything, earthquakes, anything that could be potentially damaging. Um, another issue for the Trump administration has been that they are not as concerned about pollution and greenhouse gas emissions as maybe a Democratic administration would be. And in the United States, that's pretty inextricably linked to different environmental impacts of, of projects on poorer communities uh, and communities of color. So how all of that looks uh, at the end of the day really depends on, on who's, uh, who's in charge. But largely speaking, I mean, generally speaking, the Trump administration has been, has been most interested in rolling back existing uh, regulations as opposed to proposing new ones that would have specific impact. So do we know which like which way the real estate industry is falling on that? Because that does sound in many ways attractive if you're on a very surface level, if you're building a building, fewer regulations, sounds great. You know, I think like so much else in America today, it really depends on where you're doing business, right? If you're in California, you already have statewide regulations that regulate a lot of these sustainable laws in terms of what your building looks like, what it's made out of, how often it's inspected. Uh, before it's even built, you have to reach all these different CEQA regulations uh, in terms of its impact uh, on the environment and, and the local communities. So in that sense, it wouldn't necessarily be a, a day-night change, right? But if you're maybe in the Deep South and you don't have existing state regulations that look at environmental impact, it, it could be a, a massive change to have federal regulation that would come in and look at all these different ways to make your building sustainable. And not just that, to retroactively retrofit buildings so that they meet uh, specific standards. That's Riley Gutierrez McDermott, our editor on the West Coast. Of course, US elections garner enormous interest around the world. This one, even more so than usual. 
Donald Trump has been campaigning in the battleground states that will decide this contest. One of the most important areas is the so-called Rust Belt. That's America's old industrial heartland in the northeast of the country. Four years Our ago, UK editor, Mike Phillips, walked me through what the world is watching for in the Trump-Biden race and how real estate investment around the world may be affected by the health of the US economy and American foreign policy. Obviously, a US election is always, you know, headline news around the world, and it's absolutely no, no different whatsoever in Britain. We're, we're speaking the day after the final debate. That was the lead item on all of the BBC news programmes this morning and kind of wall-to-wall across, um, across the networks over here. Um, and at the moment, you know, this election feels particularly seismic given the, the the divisions and the polarities between the two sides and obviously everything that's happened throughout 2020 this election every election in the US obviously feels like a, a big moment in time and, and feels like it might change things um, but this one feels particularly seismic. Have you heard much about how the outcome of this election could affect the levels of investment in commercial real estate uh, in the US? Sure I mean the way, the way an international investor would look at it is leaving aside who, who's going to win and whose policies would be better for the U.S. economy. Um, you know, the state of the U.S. economy has a huge impact on, on global real estate, real estate investment flows. So if the U.S. economy is doing particularly well, that tends to make you know, real, the real estate sector do well as well. Um, and so if the U.S. real estate sector looks very investable, that can draw capital that might otherwise have gone to a country like the UK, a city like London or any of the other big European cities. Investors are always, especially the big global investors, they're always looking at things on a relative basis. You know, how does London look versus New York versus San Francisco versus Berlin versus Sydney? So if the US economy is doing particularly well, um, then that can draw capital away from uh, away from those those destinations towards the US. And obviously the flip side of that is if the US economy is doing particularly badly, um, that makes the um, that makes you, you know, places like the UK, um, which is a sort of stable economy and a stable jurisdiction and a big liquid real estate market that can take take investment away from the US towards um, towards other countries. And obviously the flip side of that is um, if the US economy is doing badly, that obviously creates distress in the real estate in the real estate sector. So the flip side of what I've just said is if there's a lot of distress floating around, you've got a lot of money being raised by the big private equity firms, the big opportunity funds. Um, so if they're seeing, you know, blood on the streets, as they as they put it in the US, then they're more likely to be investing there because, you know, ultimately they tend to believe in it as a long term play. But if there's a lot of distress in the US economy, that creates distressed real estate and that creates a lot of opportunities for those big um, private equity firms to deploy capital there. And that means, you know, maybe they're not going to be putting quite as much money into into sort of opportunities in Europe and uh, and the UK. So, as I say, it's, you know, very difficult to say at this point which which candidates policies would be better for the U for the US uh, economy overall. But how that US economy ultimately does, um, you know, has a big impact on, on global real estate capital flows. Have we heard anything yet about people targeting distressed US real estate or is it too soon? I think the certainly in terms of overseas investors, you know, they when they invest in the US, it doesn't tend to be into sort of distressed assets. 
purely because you know there are so many players in the US as a as an overseas player it's very difficult to kind of compete with those long established um you know domestic brands in the in the US the Blackstones the 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 Starwoods etc you know they do tend to give money to those people and put money in their in their funds but you know if you look at the big european pension funds that have invested in the in the US the likes of um of Allianz from Germany or Union Investment they've tended to buy you know good quality assets so you know they they they're obviously looking for a kind of you know stable um you know well performing US economy to uh to invest um the as i say the the flip side is um you know those US guys are obviously the, the by far the biggest players in in distressed assets in in Europe um and i'm sure you know they'll be putting a lot of money to work over here because economies over here aren't going too well but if they see more opportunities at home which they haven't so much in uh, in recent years um you know they'll be uh, they'll be keen to invest in their home market what about um it's just been a very tumultuous four years like so much change and so many big stories always happening does that put people off at all do you think i think well you know obviously the incumbent sort of presidency in the US has been very controversial, very very divisive. But as I say, you've still seen a lot of those um, investors. Alliance has been a particularly um, prolific investor in the US. Um, some of the the Scandinavian pension funds like Electra and ATP have been uh, have been big investors in the in the US. Ultimately, I think what those people would would say is that they try and you know kind of drown out the the political noise and actually just look at the underlying economic fundamentals so while the US economy has been been doing well they've been perfectly happy to uh, to invest there i'm sure um you know that that's how they would position themselves that they are kind of you know fairly apolitical and look just look at the economic uh, side of things um so that's how i'm sure they would view that what about foreign policy? I mean, there's not a huge... It's obviously not entirely clear what foreign policy is, where things will swing. We don't know who's going to win. But how much does a president, a US president's foreign policy affect kind of flows of investment around the world? I think, I think that has an absolutely huge um, impact. So if you take the example, for instance, of um, US policy towards China which um you know has become you know significantly less accommodating under the under the Trump presidency again you know for leaving aside the kind of rights and wrongs of that um chinese investors haven't been huge in you know outbound investors in in global real estate for the past few years because the central party there has um instructed um in- investors to to focus their investment on domestic markets and try and you know kind of reduce the outflows of of kind of you know capital from china but um you know the the investment that has happened hasn't been going to the us because of that um as i say those notable hostilities between you know the presidency and uh, china and you know if you take the example more recently of great britain which is you know is rowed quite significantly with china over china's policy towards hong kong again you've had a lot of noise you know britain has for the past you know kind of five years had a very very strong relationship with china and really courted investors um from there to try and you know draw in domestic chinese investment um you know that that policy towards hong kong has you know created a 
big, big sort of chilling between the two countries. And, um, you know, officials from China have said, you know, we are going to direct our investment out elsewhere. So the policy that a president chooses, particularly towards an emerging superpower like China, will have a big impact on on where those economies choose to uh, choose to put their their investment capital in real estate. That's Mike Phillips, our London editor. More of our stories online at biznow.com. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.